Thanks so much for joining us here on the Rivers Church Podcast. We see a church full of passionate people who reach the unchurched with the gospel of Jesus. Our heart is to equip people to love, live, and lead in God's kingdom. We hope you enjoy today's message and pray that it encourages you to be all that God has destined you to be. If you need anything, please feel free to reach out to us and check us out on our website at riverschurch.co. That's riverschurch.co. So, hey, it's Father's Day, and I get the honor of introducing to you a good friend of mine who is going to be preaching the word today. Super excited to have Pastor Tim Daly in the house here at Rivers Church. In fact, Pastor Tim, why don't you go ahead and come on up here. Uh, If you've been around here for a while, you've seen him, you've heard him. I I just got to say this. I am so thankful for this man. It happens to be Father's Day, but this man has become like a spiritual dad to me. And I survived 2020 in large part because of him and his wife, Lori, who's here with us. They took me and, and Pastor Amy under our wings. They are, they're, honestly, guys, they're such a blessing. And so it's kind of fun for me to have one of my spiritual dads preaching on Father's Day here. And uh, he's got a great word. Uh, he's just amazing. He's, this, Pastor Tim is a bishop over a network of churches in Kuwait, Philippines, and in England. And so uh, it's just an honor and a privilege to, to, to know him, to be mentored by him, and to have him here today. So one more time. Come on, give, give, him, a, give him a welcome. Wow, he's too kind. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tyrone. Um, you know, God gives you special relationships in your life, and it was amazing how we met. I've told it before, so I won't get into that again, but just how we met each other, and then how God has allowed us to develop a friendship, and uh, it's just been precious. Thank you, Tyrone and Amy. I don't know if you realize it, but you're very blessed to have pastors who love you so much. Whenever we get together, they talk so encouraged about you. They love you. They're sharing what God's doing. And if my wife and I could, we'd be here every week. We love Rivers Church, and we love worshiping with you. We feel like this is home, you know? So thank you, Tyrone, for having us today and for allowing us to share from this pulpit again. We always love opportunities to share God's word, and so it's a privilege I also want to give out props to the fathers. You know, it's one thing to be a man. It's another thing to be a father. You can be a sperm donor, but it doesn't make you a father. We live in a drought in our world today. And the drought is not a water drought. It's a man. It's a father's drought, actually. Uh, I've traveled literally around the globe and preached in many countries of the world And I have seen so many fatherless children and the brokenness and the hurt. And so whenever I meet fathers and rejoice with fathers, my heart does rejoice. Because it's easy to make babies, it's hard to raise them. It's one thing to bring a baby into the world. It's another thing to go through the process of discipling your babies and raising those babies into men and women of God. 
So I want to thank all of you that are fathers and that are stepping up to the task and who are loving God and loving your families. And, and my heart goes out too to you single moms. Uh, my heart, sometimes I grieve so much for especially a lot of these boys that uh, are craving for a father's love. But thank God for a mom who's sticking with them and standing with them. And sometimes fathers, when moms are gone or pass away, and fathers have to step up and be that father as well as try to bring a mothering love to them, which is impossible for us. But um, we just want to say props to the dads today, the real dads. I appreciate it. I have six boys and a bunch of grandkids. And so uh, I know what it is to raise children. My wife and I know what it is to, to be real fathers and mothers. Amen? And I want to talk a little bit about that aspect today. I'm actually going to be talking to you about this subject. If you would just write it down, if you take notes, um, I would appreciate it. Because if you're like me, uh, once you leave, you'll start forgetting Okay, so that's why you take notes, not because I'm good, but because your memory is short. <laughs> Can I get an amen for that? So take some notes if, if you really believe God has a word for you today. And I just want us to pray as we start, but I want to talk to you about discipleship, the act of passing the baton to the next generation. Now, when I talk to you about discipleship today, I want you to know that our entire ministry globally is based on a discipling model. I disciple people. That's my life. Um, I, I no longer pastor our church that was out in Kuwait that was, became the mother church to churches all over the globe. I pass that on to a disciple of mine. But I still disciple people because that's my life. I'll always do that as long as God gives me a breath and health and ability to do that. Because did you know that when you were born, uh, when God created man, actually, he gave them really two wonderful gifts. Number one, he gave them identity. Their identity was in him. They cre he created them what? In his image. Did you know we live in a world today that they don't know who they are and they don't know why they're here? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why that happens in just a moment here. But God gave us identity and he gave us a purpose. He said, go, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And so he gave us a purpose to exist. But when sin came, our identity was scarred and our purpose was lost. We lost our sense of purpose. And so people all over the world are saying, why am I here? And who am I? We see that in marriages, women and men struggling with their identity. Who am I? And after 20 years of marriages, they say, oh, I, I got to go find out who I am. So I'm leaving you. That breaks my heart. You see, when sin enters, our identity and our purpose is damaged. But when salvation comes, your identity is restored to be found in him. Paul talked about how wonderful it was to be found in him. His identity was in Jesus. When you get born again, you really get your identity. 
And it's not this uh, self-identity. It's founded in who he is. And boy, is it a healthy identity. The problem is moving into that. You see, after years of living apart from him, and now that you're born again, that's where Romans 12, 1 and 2 come in, on the renewing of the mind. Why is it so important we renew our minds? Because they've been damaged. And so one of the damages is our identity. And so we need to come and discover our true identity in Christ. If you want to know what that is, just read Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, or Colossians 1 and 2. I mean, just start reading some of Paul's letters because he was so concerned constantly about identity issues because he knew that believers who didn't have that straightened out were going to struggle. The second thing, and by the way, fathers, that's one of our biggest issues especially those of us who didn't come from really good, stable home situation. Our wives also, women. We, I don't know how to be a father. I don't know. How to, I thank God I had a good father role, a man who loved Jesus, brought us up in Christ, taught us about Jesus. I was blessed. My wife the same. But I'll tell you, I see so many that that isn't the case. But let me tell you, you're not, look, don't use that as an excuse because God wants to heal even that because you have a good, good father. That's who he is. Thank you, Joel, for singing that song today. That's who he is. So he restored our identity when we came to Jesus. He's in the process for many of you doing that right now. But he also restored your purpose. You know what your purpose is? I'll tell you, I can, I can give you variations of this, but I want to tell you, we all have been called to do one thing. And it's found in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, the Great Commission. We've all been called to go and make disciples. And it starts right in your home, men and women. You know, I talk to people, oh yeah, I love discipling and their kids are going to hell around them because they're not discipling their kids. Our first line of defense are those closest to us. Don't miss that responsibility that we have. So today I want to talk to you about discipleship. And I'm going to give you a bit different definition of discipleship. I've heard probably hundreds of definitions on a discipleship. And this is just one of them. And I told it to you a minute ago. It's the act of passing the baton to the next generation. Now, there's more to that word, but let me tell you, this is definitely part of what discipleship is. The act of passing the baton to the next generation. Let's ask God to speak to us. Father, I pray right now that you will work in our hearts today. Holy Spirit, be free to convict us in areas where we're weak. And Lord, to correct us where we need to be corrected. And Lord, to strengthen us, build us. And Lord, make us true disciples, starting right in our own homes and then throughout the nations of the world. Lord, thank you for a church and a pastor where I know this message is being taught, Lord. And where there's a, there's a time now of, of really learning and growing in this area here at Rivers. But Lord, help us to embrace the call of God on our life to make disciples. 
and to understand that whatever our gifts are, we'll use those gifts to accomplish your purpose for us. So thank you, Lord. We bless you today. Be free to work. Remove any hindrances in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible's full of natural illustrations. And these natural illustrations teach spiritual truths. For instance, if you have your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy 2. And I'm going to read from verse 4 to 7. Where Paul uses three natural illustrations to teach spiritual truths. He says, No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So he talks about a soldier and is going to apply that spiritually. Secondly, he uses in verse 5 the, the word an athlete. He says, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. So he uses an athlete. Often he refers to athletic competition. I think Paul likes sports. Also in verse 6, he refers to the hardworking farmer. Notice what he says. The hardworking farmer should be first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. So here we have a soldier, an athlete, a hardworking farmer, and he uses these natural illustrations to teach spiritual truths. Now another term, another situation he likes to use, or another illustration, is a runner. Today I want us to focus our attention on runners running in a race. Let me give you some verses. 1 Corinthians 9.24, it says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. I could see Paul talking about this and then preaching up a storm, illustrating the Christian life and walk in this. Also, Galatians 2, 2 <clears throat> says, I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. Now listen, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. <clears throat> so now he's referring to himself as the runner. He's saying, look, I don't want to waste my time running a race in vain. Then in Hebrews, very familiar passage, I'm sure you've heard this. Hebrews 12.1. <clears throat> Therefore, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So Paul likes the runner as an illustration. And I do too, frankly. But notice he talks about this is a long-term race. And really this race, this life that God gives us, however long it is, is the race that we're to be running. And I want us to talk, I want to talk to you just a moment today about, about runners, but not just any runner. I want to talk to you about relay runners. 
<clears throat> relay runners. Now, a relay race is run by a team of four runners. The first runner carries a baton. It's like a stick. They call it a baton. And he carries this baton, and after running a specified distance, which is called a leg, the runner hands the baton to the next team member. The exchange, now get this, is important. The exchange must occur within an area called the exchange zone. The exchange zone is 20 meters or 22 yards in length. Now imagine this runner is running at full speed and he hits this exchange zone and he only has 20 yards to get rid of the baton to the guy before him. Now that baton must be exchanged within that zone. And so the timing is crucial. If the runners do not exchange the baton within the zone, the team is disqualified. Now get this in your mind. This race, a relay race, put yourself in the race. You're running one of the legs of this race. Understand that proper strategy is crucial to the success of a race. You don't just get out and run. There is an actual strategy. Who goes first, who goes second, who goes third, who is the last leg of the race? How you pass it, when you pass it, Getting out of the zone, not being disqualified. There's a lot of strategy involved in a relay race. A lesson that can be learned throughout the Bible is the importance of passing the baton from one generation to another. It's not enough to run the race. Listen to me. We also must pass the baton of the gospel to the next generation. Why is your pastor calling you to go out and love and serve this community? To pass a baton. Why are you constantly being challenged to be a part of, a, 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 of, of one of the discipling groups so that you can grow and be a part of passing the baton to the next generation? You see, it's not enough to run that race. We also must pass the baton of the gospel. We must hand off the baton at the right time, and we must do it well. As in a relay race, we only have a certain amount of time and a certain amount of distance in our life to properly pass the baton to those whom we have been entrusted. Let me give you an illustration. In Kuwait, where I pastored, the average worker would last about two years on a contract. They would come in. Kuwait is a, is a tiny nation. There's only about 3.3 million people in the entire nation. And one-third of them are Kuwaitis. And two-thirds of them are expats from all over the world who have come to work there and earn money. And during that time, we have a person for about two years, we figure. For us, it's so important that within two years of time that we lay a strong foundation in those that we lead to Jesus. Because as hard as it is to see those people leave the country and go somewhere else to work or go back to their home countries, 
We have decided to see this as a great opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to extend the kingdom to wherever they go. So we have two years. That's our exchange zone, we look. At that as our exchange zone. The time frame when we can pour into their life the gospel and train them and equip them to go out and pass the baton on to others. It's interesting, during COVID, during COVID, so many churches and so many people suffered, and we suffered. We had our own challenges all over the globe, still are having challenges. Our churches in the Philippines and India and other places are suffering big time with COVID. Our pastors are getting sick and leaders are getting sick, and they don't have, they don't have what you have here. You wouldn't want to go to their hospitals, let me tell you. So I'm telling you, we, it, it's been a challenge for everybody. But our leaders decided, look, even though we closed down five of our major buildings last year in Kuwait, because we were paying a lot of money for them, we couldn't meet in them, we didn't know when we'd get to meet in them, so what do you do? We have about 2,000 people, 26 services a weekend, what do we do? We decided we wouldn't give up. So we opened, instead of 26 services, we now have 80 worship services. And we don't meet in a big building. We meet in houses all over Kuwait. Our discipleship didn't suffer. We had over 1,900 decisions for Christ last year. And we, we taught the gospel to over 3,000 through Alpha Course. So what I'm saying is this. Look, we only have a certain amount of time. We also lost 700 leaders who had to leave the country because they lost their jobs. Now you say, man, your church must have just been decimated. No. You see, every year in Kuwait, we lose almost one-third of our congregation. So if we don't grow by at least a third, we will die in three years. So look, we're determined that we will continue to share the gospel if it's one, if it's 10, if it's 50, if it's 500, and that we have a time frame, however long God allows us to be in that person's life. Knowing when is the right time and the right way to pass on the baton is important for us. We've been very strategic because Jesus was strategic. He knew he had limited time. Look, if he hadn't done his job with the disciples he had, you wouldn't be here today. You ought to be thankful for the 12 who did not drop the baton. Now, Jesus handed the baton to his disciples they ran a good race, and they passed the baton to the next generation. Now, if you're still in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 2. Because Paul talks about what he did with Timothy. Now, look at this. He said, and the things you've heard from me. This is Paul speaking. He said, what you've heard from me, Timothy. So Paul discipled Timothy. Now, listen to what he says. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust 
to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So he's saying, look, Tim, here's the gospel. I want you to take this and you pass it on to not just anybody, but faithful people. I want to tell you, when you disciple people, you don't just show a line out there. You pray. You pray for faithful people who will take the gospel and do the same thing that you're teaching them to do. And so it says, look, here's four generations of disciples. Look at it. There's Paul. There's Timothy. There's the reliable people. And there's those who also were qualified to teach others. Thank God they passed the baton. Now for a proper pass of the baton, look at what's needed. And I want to give these these really quick. First, there must be trust and confidence that the team member will hand it over properly. You got to trust your team member, folks. Look, if you're being discipled by somebody, you don't trust them. You, I would suggest you might find another person. There's trust involved in this. Look, what I talk about with Tyrone, I don't talk about with you. It's none of your business. It's our business. It's not your business. And I don't go around talking about it to other people. Why? Because it's not their business. We have to build trust. Number two, a runner receiving the baton cannot look back or swerve out of his lane. You know, if you're constantly looking back at the old life, the way things used to be, and I want to go back to Egypt where it's warm and secure, you know, then you will never, you will never run the race well. You'll fall down. Number three, it requires knowledge of each other's abilities. You know, it takes time. Discipleship is about investment. It's about investing in others. When I disciple somebody, I say, look, I don't take it, I take it very seriously. I, the guy that now leads our entire organization out in Kuwait, uh, his name's Pastor Allen. And when Allen came and asked me if I would disciple him, and I first said no. And I said no because, Alan, I don't have the time. When I disciple somebody, it takes a lot of time. And so he came back later. I just dropped it. I thought it was over. And he came back several weeks later and he said, well, have you reconsidered? I said, uh, no. And he said, did you pray about it? Well, I'm the pastor. And it's like, no. He said, well, would you go and pray about it? Well, what am I going to say? No. So I said, okay, Alan, I'll go pray about it. Do you know that was the best prayer I ever prayed? We have been lifelong friends since. I just got, I just got the most beautiful note this morning from him about what I had meant and what I mean to his life and how I had stepped in when his father wasn't there. And I became a spiritual dad to him. It touched my heart so much. And you know what? It took time, effort. My refrigerator became his refrigerator. My car was his car. He was one of my boys. We lived life together. Discipleship is not about books and filling in the blanks. It's about relationships. I invested 
Number four, the runner passing the baton has to tell the other runner when to go. See, if he says go too early, he won't have time to catch him. And he won't be able to give him the baton. Look, I, I stuck close to Alan for so many years. We worked together, almost 15 years. And during that time, first he watched. Then eventually I found myself watching and being his encourager. But you have to know when to say go. And number five, it also requires strict obedience to the rules. There's some things you need to understand as you disciple people, that they're as committed as you are. You know, I've had to tell people over the years, I'm sorry, but you're not ready for this. Uh, I love you, and I'll pray with you, but uh, this is not working. Because I'm putting all my time into this, and you don't even come prepared. And you're never available. Oh, I'll make it different. I say, look, maybe you need somebody else. Or sometimes I say, look, you go pray about it for a while. I'll pray. And when you are really ready, God will show us. Maybe it's just not the time. So there's a lot involved in this, being a father, being mothers, raising children, passing the baton, discipling. But I want to end this up with this. What is the impact of a poor baton pass? What happens when you don't pass the baton? There are many biblical illustrations of those who did not pass the baton properly to the next generation. The baton that we must pass on to the next generation of leaders is the gospel, my friends. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Paul said, if we fail to pass the baton of the gospel, see, we're gonna, be, we're gonna totally miss the whole point. He said this, for what I received, I passed on to you. It wasn't his message. This is what he received from Jesus. Look, you are not discipling people to yourself. You're discipling them to Jesus. I am sick of seeing controlling discipling relationships. Oh, my word. It's horrible. People telling you when you're going to get married, who you're going to marry, what you're going to do, what this is going to do. You got to be here. You got to look. That is sick. It's not healthy in a home and it's not healthy in discipleship. I've seen so many discipling models rise up and fall down for this very reason, control. And teaching people to need you, that's your own psychotic problem. You don't teach people to need you, you teach people how much they need Jesus. You don't disciple them to yourself, you disciple them to Jesus. Why is it important that we pass the baton properly that next generation? Now, I want to I do a little illustration here. So, Tyrone, if you could set these up, these chairs right here, three chairs. And I, I'm sorry if I'm limping around a little bit. I had complete knee replacement surgery less than three months ago. So I am a little limpy today, a little gimpy. So 
I'm going to have Tyrone do the job here for me. I want to use this illustration, and I hope it'll help you understand as we look at three examples. I don't know if I'll get all three of them, but I, at least one of these examples in the Old Testament. That well, That's good. But maybe move them over this way a little bit, or camera guy. I'm sorry to all you watching online because I'm not going to stay in one place, okay? So... <laughs> Uh, I want to help you to understand why do our children or those that we are discipling turn away from God? So hear me, folks. This is, this is big stuff. To understand this, we're going to look at these, this illustration. Now, I want you to look at the progress of these three different examples. So I want to have John Mark come up here and you sit in the first chair, okay? And bro, why don't you come and sit in the second chair here and bring your friend, you can sit in the third chair, okay? You guys are close. That's the problem when you're on the front row, okay? That's why, notice, notice where everybody's sitting, way in the back. See? They knew I was going to call them up here today. <laughs> so we're going to look at three people, or three Examples, but in one example, we've got over here, we've got first chair is Joshua. Second chair, the elders that lived during Joshua's time. Third chair, we have another generation that rose after Joshua. Now, if you have your Bible, I want you to open the book of Joshua. The principle is seen and what happens in the generations that follow Joshua. So follow with me here quickly. Joshua 24, 14 and 15 contains Joshua's farewell message to Israel. Now notice what he says here. And this is the heart of Joshua, okay? So listen to this. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell. But here's Joshua. Josh, he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, this is important. Remember that. <clears throat> now, in Joshua 24, jump back to chapter 24, verse 31, and then also over to Judges 2, verse 7. I want you to notice it explains what happened to those who observed Joshua. They observed Joshua, but I want you to notice something. They and they benefited from Joshua's faith. They observed Joshua. They benefited from Joshua's faith. <clears throat> now look, it says, Israel served the Lord <clears throat> all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for Israel. So you got Joshua who said, look, as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. We're dedicated to this. We are committed, 110. We're committed. Then there's these guys who watched Josh. They benefited from his faith. They watched him. They were blessed by it. 
and it impacted their lives. But we're going to see something about them in a minute. And it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Josh and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done. Now, as long as Joshua was alive, the people served God. And as long as they were alive, the people served God. But now we got another generation. Judges 2, verses 8 to 10. Look at that with me. Because it reveals what happened in the next generation after Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. Man, you lived a long time, John. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timrath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all the generations also were gathered to their fathers, and all that generation now, he's gone. You could stay here. And, and he's gone. And it says this. It says this. And there arose another generation after him who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Whoa. The next generation from Josh now doesn't even know the Lord. Joshua, get this now. This is important. You guys come back and sit now. I'm not done with you yet. <laughs> Joshua had a firsthand experience with God. There were miracles, were part of his daily life. Look at this. Look what happened. He crossed the Jordan. He saw the walls fall down flat. He prayed the sun and the moon would stand still to give him a longer day and achieve a victory. You see, over and over and over again, Josh saw great miracles as he stood in faith. The elders who followed Josh had a secondhand knowledge. Write that down. Secondhand knowledge of God's power. What do you mean? Well, Joshua did the great works while the elders saw the great works. They didn't do the great works. They saw the great works. You know what? We've got generations of people that are growing up in our churches who are watching the leaders do great things. And then they're seeing it and it blesses them and it encourages them. But then they haven't experienced them themselves. And what's happening to this generation Look at here. The next generation did not even know the stories about God. What are you saying? Well, firsthand experience develops convictions. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's what Josh had. Secondhand knowledge <coughs> develops beliefs. That's different. <coughs> While the elders believed God was powerful, the opening chapter of Judges reveals they didn't trust him to drive out the enemy from the land. You see, as long as Josh was there, he said, come on, boys, we can beat him, we can beat him. Josh is not there. Uh, no, we'll just leave them there in the land. They compromised. And consequently, they gave a half-hearted effort and did not obey completely. And then Judges 21, 25 sums it up. 
their whole philosophy, every one did what was right in his own eyes. You see, first-hand experience, second-hand experience, no experience. Now, there are other illustrations, and I just don't have time to go through these, and I'll give them to you, and you go study these out. One of them would be Abraham, Isaac, and Rehoboam. There's a story there. Also, David, Absalom, I mean, David, Absalom, and Rehoboam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you see the same thing in those three generations began to happen. When it came to this generation, this next generation, there arose generations that did not know God. Now, if you have your if you can put this up on the screen, I got a little chart. I hope it's there. You can see it. It's a little chart. And you guys can go sit and give them a hand. Didn't they do a great job? I want you to notice if they were able to put this up. First chair, second chair, third chair, the characteristics. First chair is first-hand experience. Second chair, second-hand knowledge. Third chair, no knowledge, no experience. First chair, convictions. Second chair, beliefs. Third chair, options. Or I mean opinions, excuse me, opinions. First chair, whole heart. Second chair, half heart. Third chair, no heart. First chair, praise God. Second chair, please others. Third chair, please yourself. First chair, Worship, second chair, work, third chair, wealth. First chair, God, second chair, me and God, third chair, me. And lastly, first chair, commitment, second chair, compromise, third chair, conflict. Look, let me put it this way. Many of us did not have the greatest role models growing up. Perhaps you weren't raised by a first chair Christian follower. That's okay. That's okay. The key is to remember that the legacy you live is more important than the heritage you receive. Did you hear me? The legacy you leave is more important than the heritage you've received. You can make the choice to sit in that first chair. You can make a choice to move out of that third, second, third chair. What do you do if you're in the first chair and your kids and grandkids are in the second and third chair? Or your disciples are in the second and third chair? What do you do? While they need to make a choice to change chairs themselves, you can be nudging them in that direction. You, look, we can't do it for them, but we can sure nudge them. I'll tell you, I don't know if you were one of those parents that said, well, we're not going to force religion on our kids. We're just going to let them grow up and choose for themselves. Yeah, you can't force Jesus on anybody, but I'm going to give them a great taste of it before they get old. And I was an abusive parent. I'll tell you why. They had to go to church every Sunday. If you call that abusive, I guess I was abusive. But every one of them came to Jesus, and now three of them are serving Jesus full-time ministry. And that wasn't because of me, let me tell you. Because I would encourage them to do anything but be a pastor. (laughs) 
that they had a calling on their life. And they're serving Jesus today. But what do you do? What chair are those you are mentoring sitting in today? And how do we assist our disciples in the process of experience, firsthand lessons with God and developing their faith? Here's the deal, guys. If they don't experience it themselves, they'll never embrace it. Discipleship, I told you, is not about sitting in a classroom. It's about getting them out of the classroom and experiencing Jesus in their everyday life. Rather than reading a book together, why don't you teach them to pray? Why don't you teach them how to love other people? I spent the first years of my life seated in a second chair. I grew up in a Christian home. I trusted Christ as Savior while I was a child. And generally, I was a good kid, if you ask me. (laughs) After college in my early ministry, I realized I did not know how to live by faith because I never had to do it. In my second pastorate, I wrestled with whether God wanted me in ministry or whether I was trying to please others and make them happy. I came to a point where I bottomed out. My wife at one point said to me, if God is alive, then you need to start acting like it. And I'm the pastor of a church. The Bible had become an academic book to me. I wasn't praying like I should. I wasn't in spiritual, I was in the spiritual desert and I came to the realization that I either had to walk with God or walk away, but I would not be a hypocrite. I was tired of hypocrisy in the church. So my wife and I went on a journey to discover what it meant to live in a first chair. So I made a conscious choice to change chairs. Now this does not mean I'm perfect today. Let me tell you, ask my wife and ask my kids. They'll tell you. But it means I fastened my seat belt and a five-point shoulder harness to keep me in the first chair. If I don't constantly recommit myself, I will naturally slide into the second chair or third chair of compromise. I don't care what chair you're in, you can move. And it's not always up. Sometimes it's the other direction. So the question is this, and I close with this today. How do we move others and ourselves to the second and third chair? I mean, from the second and third chair to that first chair. I want you to write these down and go meditate on them. If we had time, I'd break you into groups and have you discuss it. Because in our church overseas, after the message, we get in groups and we talk. I can't get them to shut up because they like talking so much. We got really good at this. We call it activation. I want you to activate this in your life. But how do I move and help my grandkids, my kids, and those I'm discipling move up? Number one, help them understand their identity in Christ. 
not in their past, their current position, their family, their job, their possessions, their religious background, and on and on it goes. I don't care what title you have been given in this church. That's all it is. It's a title. You know what the church needs? Not more titles. They need more first-chair believers who are committed to living Jesus without titles. Because my identity is in Jesus, and I don't really care if you think well of me or not. Number two, teach them to personally hear from God. You know what? You can pray for your disciples all you want, and that's good. You have to do that. But look, if you never teach them to pray, they're just going to depend on you to pray for them. Sometimes people come up and say, Pastor, pray for me. No. You pray. What do you mean? You pray right now. And I might grab this young man and say, you come over and pray. Or I'll send you to children's church and say, let them pray for you. You want rear prayer warriors? Go to kids' church. Why? Because they don't struggle with faith. We ruin them by the time they get here. It's a big church. Teach them to hear from God. Do you hear from God? Help them to become confident in their ability to discern the voice of God. My sheep hear my voice and they know it. Number three, help them become grounded in the word of God and confident students of the word. Look, you need to know this book. Either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. Next, place them in situations where they are forced to, to make choices to trust and depend on God. You say, what do you mean, pastor? I mean this. They must experience God firsthand and not just observe what others are doing. Put them in places where they really got to live by faith. Let them experience God's real. You know, when my, my wife and I really had to make some choices and move out of that chair, I left that second pastorate. Because God called us out of there. He said, I'm gonna, you're going to have to learn some stuff. And one of them is going to be to depend on me. We went back and we lived in the country at a house that we had out in the country. For two years, we learned that God was exactly who he says he is. What do you mean? Well, when we didn't have any food, it was so interesting. You just pray. And it was amazing. Why? Because God supplied. We had a wood-burning stove, and it's in Seattle area. It was winter. It was cold. And you know what? We didn't have any wood. And we gathered and prayed, and funny thing. I heard something at the door. I go, and this envelope falls out of the door, and I open it, and I look, and there's a check in there that says for wood for me to go get a cord of wood so it could get us through the rest of the winter. You see, you don't learn that by a book. How do you learn it? You learn that Jehovah Rophe is your healer when you're sick. You learn that Jehovah Jireh is your, is your provider when what? You don't have anything. You learn that Jehovah Shalom is your peace 
when everybody else turns against you. Next, pray with them. And when God answers, point it out. They see that God answers their prayers. You didn't. That's firsthand experience. Hallelujah. Get them shouting and jumping in on the roof. Get them praising God. Look, God answered my prayers. It's amazing, isn't it? He really does that. Now, this is important. Don't be overprotective. You say, what? You must not rescue them and bail them out whenever they face a challenge. <laughs> Let them experience God's provision and work in their life. Now, I hate to see people suffer. That's just who I am. I cannot stand it. I hate to see people go through bad times. But I had to learn to let my disciples figure it out because I would bail them out if I could. And a lot of times I could, and I didn't. Next, help them understand that crisis and difficulty is not necessarily bad. Oh, Pastor, pray. I'm going through a crisis. No. Come on through it. Sometimes God's best lessons are learned in these seasons. Help them have a first-hand experience with God and develop their faith. They won't learn faith if you are constantly bailing them out of their experiences. Understand that first-chair disciples are not made from just sitting in a class or filling out a lesson in a workbook. If first chair believers had personally experienced God in practical ways in their everyday life, then they're gonna, they can't do it for others. They've got to help them learn that. There's the pro, here's the process of discipleship. Write this down. I'm almost done, Tyrone. Don't have a, a coronary over there. I'm, I think I'm going past into the next service. I don't know when it starts. That's the good thing when I'm not the pastor here, I can make you sit longer, and then you can be mad at him, not me. You can get mad at Tyrone, okay? Because I'm gone. <laughs> here it is, write it down. This is important, listen to this. Here's the process. You do, they watch. That's first step, listen. You do, they watch. Second, you do, they help. Get that down. You do, and they help. Third, they do and you help. And last, or not last, next one, fourth one, they do, you watch. They do it, you watch. You're there to encourage. Lastly, they do. They do it. They do it. How are we able to open 80 house churches in the middle of a pandemic when it was illegal to go out of your house because people were trained and they were at a place in being discipled that they said, I'll do. They took their building seriously. They couldn't go out of their building 
but they reached their building for Jesus. And lastly, expose your disciples and your children to first chair people. What? Get them around some first chair people who will stretch them. You want to be a first chair? Well, what is it? Watch some first chairs. Which chair best describes you today, where you're at? If you choose to do nothing, which chair will your children or your disciples likely be in? What is one measurable change you can make which will help you or those you disciple to move to the first chair? What, what can you change in your own life that may help them move up? Look, are you a bowl, a colander, or a funnel? Think about that a minute. See, a colander is a bowl with many holes, and a funnel is a bowl with one hole, and a bowl is designed to keep things in it. Everything we do as a church must help people move forward on the discipleship journey. If it does not serve as a catalyst for discipleship, don't do it. I'm challenging you. Tyrone and Amy, don't. There's a lot of good things out there, a lot of good things, but not all are for you. You can say no, and not everybody will like it. That's where the rest of you need to trust those who are passing the baton. A bowl, if you fill it, it just holds people. Is that what you want to be? You want to be in church where you're just held? Or a colander, it just plugs up holes in the bowl. Leaks a lot. I want a funnel. What do you mean? A funnel directs what's in it and sends it out. That's the kind of church I want to be. Funnel. It's only a place where we direct people into the things of Jesus and then send them on out. Support them, encourage them, love them, pray for them. It's hard to see all those people leave Kuwait, other places where we serve, but it's not hard when they call up and say, Pastor, I got 50 people that I just took through an alpha course and a bunch of them got saved and I need to now start discipling them and I need some prayer and some help. The next thing you know, they become one of our congregations. Thailand, Philippines, Russia, Africa, Europe. I can't cry about that. I just say, yeah. We want to be a funnel who funnels God's people into their destiny and purpose. Father, make us a funnel church where the water flows freely out into the world, where there's a process as we go through of discipling and nurturing and passing the baton. But then there's that hole. A lot come in, 
but unfortunately only a few go out. Lord, we want to see more being brought through the process, being discipled and growing and loved, taught to be a first chair. Lord, make us people of conviction, firsthand saints who are not afraid to step out in faith and do the impossible because we serve the God of the impossible. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Thanks again for listening to this message at Rivers Church. We'd love to have you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. To learn more about what's going on in the life of our church community, check us out at riverschurch.co. I pray that this week you would walk in the power and the presence of God. Thanks for joining us.